0: After instructing the elders that Peter writes to, and the young men, elders aren't to lord it over those allotted to their charge, but to be examples for the flock, because we are due for a reckoning with the chief shepherd, and we want to receive what he wants to give us, the unfading crown of glory, the apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5 encourages the young men by saying, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Be sober, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. We assemble tonight because we want to be sober of spirit. There's a renovation of our thinking that takes place every time we avail ourselves of God's word. And that renovation of thinking is the work of God the Holy Spirit in our hearts, in our lives, in our thinking. And the Bible doesn't describe exactly how this works. But it describes that it works. It presents this function that we have been called to run a race and we need superfood to do it. We've been called to a high calling, to a great mission. And to be about that work, we need the word in us. And one thing that I'm certain of that the Word does when we spend some time like tonight is it gives us God's perspective on life, on our time, on what we're dealing with. It helps us put it in perspective because we take into account our Creator, His purpose, His plan. What we're going to read tonight has been sitting in the dusty volumes and scrolls on forgotten shelves uh, across the world around the world, across this country. Very few people have ever thought through the contents of Isaiah chapter 34 in any detail. It's a great, very challenging passage. But the wrath of God that is bound to have its way on the nations is something we should all consider. It's something that gives us a sense of compassion for the lost. But also, it reminds us that there is the reckoning. The wickedness has a termination point. The grace period does come to a conclusion. We're going to be talking about that tonight. Let's take a moment for silent prayer and make sure that we avail ourselves of everything God would do with His Word. You don't want to be walking in darkness as the light is shining. So let's take a moment for silent prayer and bring our sins. If we have any to confess, let's, we'll do that now. Let's pray. We're grateful, Father, for the riches of your grace that you've given us from the very moment we trusted in Christ. You made us in your image and then you made us new in Christ so that we could be filled with your spirit and serve you and be about your work. You've given us your word so we'd know what that work involves and have a sense of what our lives are for. And here we are tonight, Father, seeking to take a step to advance along that path as we feed on your word so that we can live out what you require of us. We know that that's a marvelous and high calling. So strengthen us tonight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 34 tonight. Isaiah chapter 34, calling a universal wrath. It's God's judgment on all the nations, and it's one of two sort of parallel chapters, or two sort of parallel chunks of poetry. Isaiah 34, the wrath, and Isaiah 35, the restoration, the glory, the the blessing of the coming kingdom, and they are in direct opposition to one another, it seems, um, by God's design, by Isaiah's uh, poetic design, and tonight we'll talk about the wrath. And this is where we find ourselves in chapter 33 through 35, uh, with Mottier's outline, as we said, and this is, this is the section, you had the first universal proclamation, we've been kind of teasing out the idea of righteousness and the righteous in Zion under the righteous king in chapter 13. I'm sorry, chapter 33, verses 13 through 24. And now we come to the second universal proclamation. And we're calling it that because look at verse one. It says, draw near, O nations, uh, and hear uh, and listen, O peoples, let the earth and all it uh, contains here. It's this universal call, the way Isaiah is uh, setting up his proclamation. And it's very unlikely that the people that Isaiah first gave this to received it, were interested in it had any care for it. We read that in Isaiah 6. But here we are, 2,700 years later, and we're listening. We care because it is God's word, word for word. This final judgment that God describes um, in really figurative language. Well, Well, we will conclude this, if the Lord provides, we'll conclude this section of Isaiah next time we meet, which won't be this next Wednesday. I'm on a uh, I'm on a trip um, for a conference, but the following Wednesday we will finish this chunk of Isaiah and be able to t- kind of turn the corner into chapter 40 where we start with the comfort, O oh, comfort my people. And 35 sort of is a segue into that idea, the coming renewed world under the coming kingdom of the coming king. In the New American Standard, Isaiah 34 says, Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains hear and the world and all that springs from it. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations. That's that's Psalm 2 stuff. His wrath against all their armies. He's utterly destroyed them. He's given them over to slaughter. So their slain will be thrown out. Their corpses will give off their stench. The mountains will be drenched in their blood. Very graphic imagery in the poetry here. And all the hosts of heaven will wear away. The sky will be rolled up like a scroll and their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. For my sword, now the Lord speaks, is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. We just had a specific nation mentioned to Edom, which kind of, focuses the laser beam of God's wrath or the sword that is falling from the wrath of God. Edom is a portrait of the nations and is a specific recipient of God's wrath through the prophets. And we read about Edom beginning with Jacob, his brother Esau, the father of the nation of Edomites, the cousins of the children of Jacob. And the enemy and enmity relationship, the enmity relationship between Israel and Edom is well developed. And it is as close as you can get to being Jacob and not being Jacob. It's Jacob's brother. And Esau I've hated, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. One of those is chosen. The chosen one is Jacob and his children. And if you look at why, God didn't choose Jacob because he was a fantastic fella, he's not a desirable person. But he's the one God chose because God is doing something and he has a plan and he has his reasons. And so, so I think Edom is going to be emphasized through this poetry because they are as close to being Israel, but they're not. They're the Gentiles. And they are a representative nation of, uh, of, of opponents to Israel through their history. And, um, and there, there's a lot in, in the nation's history dealing with Edom where God's wrath is. Um, reserved for them the sword of the lord is filled with blood ever hear that poet that uh, that publication the sword of the lord the fundamentalist uh, publication Uh, very likely from passages like this where they got the title for that the sword of the lord you didn't want to name the title of your book of your newspaper the sword of the lord is filled with blood you just call it the sword of the lord we let, let someone look up the rest of the verse you know It is sated with fat. This is getting very visceral, literally. With the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozorah, that's the capital of Edom, and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. And so the language of God's sacrificial system with the Levites is used to describe his wrath against the Edomites. And that's interesting. And it reminds us of what those sacrifices meant. Those sacrifices that God told them to conduct were portraits of the wrath of God against sin in the person of Christ, that the Messiah would be our Passover. He would be slaughtered. And all the sacrifices, all the patriarchal sacrifices beginning in Genesis 3 with the two animals that were given, the skins that were provided for Adam and Eve, all the way through the patriarchal priesthood, Esau and, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Abel and Cain, Abel knows to give the, the blood sacrifice. All the sacrifices are pointing to the one sacrifice, but if you think about that one sacrifice, it is horrible. It is a horrible, violent thing that must be done where it says in Isaiah chapter 53, but the father, but Yahweh was pleased to crush the Messiah. And so that's a reference now focusing on the wrath side of those sacrifices. Wild oxen will also fall, from, fall with them and young bulls with strong ones. Thus their land will be soaked with blood and their dust become greasy with fat. This is the sloppiest verse perhaps in the Bible. It's just a nightmare that we need to clean up on aisle six over here. This is a mess of God's wrath. You don't want to be the recipient of God's wrath. In verse eight of 17, there's 17 verses in chapter 34. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion, for the reeve of Zion, as we'll see. Its streams will be turned into pitch and its loose earth into brimstone, that's sulfur, and its land will become burning pitch. Zion. Now he's. I thought we were mad at Edom. Now he's talking about Jerusalem. Zion. Wow. The wrath on wickedness doesn't have a national identity. It's wickedness. The national purposes God has, yes, he's going he's gonna to turn a fiery mess, turn Zion into a fiery mess, but he's also going to have an eternal purpose for Zion. This fire will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will go up forever from generation to generation. will be desolate. None will pass through it forever and ever. But pelican and hedgehog will possess it. And owl and raven will dwell in it and he will stretch over it. The line of desolation, the plumb line of emptiness. Guess what the words desolation and emptiness are? Well, you're going to have to wait and see because I'm not telling you until we get to verse 11, we walk through it. Its nobles, there is no one there whom they may proclaim king, and all its princes will be nothing. Thorns will come up, and its fortified towers, nettles, and thistles, its fortified cities, it will be a haunt of jackals and a boat of ostriches. I want to see that. Well, this is a zoo chapter. All the animals that he's talking about are all ugly, unclean, goofy animals. They're, they're, they're the horror show animals that he's describing if you want to look in nature for the odd ducks, he's listing them. The desert creatures will meet with the howlers or the wolves. The hairy goat, which your Bible might put in a margin, the goat demon or the hairy demon, literally the hairy one, also will cry to its kind. Yes, the Lilith. Yes, not the Lilith, Lilith, or translated here, the night monster will settle there and will find herself a resting place because Lilith, that word night monster is a feminine noun and The lexicons of record say this is a succubus demon. So it's an interesting passage, isn't it? Well, while we're we're talking about what's interesting, the tree snake will make its nest and lay eggs there. Gross. Now, the tree snake. Does the Bible talk about a snake and a tree? The tree snake will make its nest and lay eggs there and it will hatch and gather them under its protection. It's all feminine nouns, feminine verbs. Yes, the hawks will be gathered there. So the, the snake and the, the thing that eats the snake, every one of its kind, seek from the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these will be missing. None will lack its mate for its, his mouth has commanded. His spirit has gathered them. He's cast a lot for them. He's cast a lot for them and his hand has divided it to them line by line. They shall possess it forever from generation to generation. They'll dwell in it. Well, it sounds like we've got a really bad consequence of God's judgment with a permanent poisoning, a permanent desolation of the places that are being described from Edom, all the nations, including Edom and Zion. And the language of foreverness makes us think that this would be a permanent consequence. And that's a problem for the rest of the Bible since you have all read that there is a future and an eternal glorious Zion, that makes us scratch our heads. And the answer is not the replacement theologian who says, yeah, God's wrath was exhausted on Israel, and, and that these people today are, are not God's people, and, and all the anti-Semitism that's going forth today. Um, there are lots of influential people with lots of bad ideas, and they're coming out uh, all over the place. There's a Christian conference, for example, today. Um, a a Bible conference for uh, pastors and teachers uh, that was titled by some covenant theologians. And the title of it, and they're on mills and they read Revelation in a very interesting way, the book of Revelation. The title of the conference was Conquering and to Conquer. Going forth, conquering and to conquer. That was the name of the conference. Does anybody, does that resonate with you with your Bible reading? Going forth, conquering and to conquer? Well, that's what they're saying. They're saying that's Jesus. And the language is a quote of Revelation 6, the first seal, in the seal judgments, where one on a white horse with a bow in his hand goes forth conquering and to conquer. That one world ruler who is the first seal in Revelation 6 is the Antichrist unless you misread Revelation and you think it's just big language with cyclic descriptions of God's wrath and, and judgment and you don't believe in the timeline that's established there as the amillennialists do, then, then everything that's good is Jesus or everything that's wide is Jesus and there is no room for this, this view that John is actually presenting to us of this coming one world government. Well, those people are not, th- those people are my brothers in Christ that are teaching that conference, Conquering and to Conquer. And they're gonna use that language to describe Jesus and he is going to conquer and rule with the rod of iron. But um, it just gives you a, a sense of how important it is to rightly handle the word of truth. The people in the land today that are of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the chosen people of God. And uh, the conference I'm about to go to is actually about that, about God's deal with Israel, Now, past, present, and future. But all of Israel is not Israel. You see, there is always a remnant of believing national genetic Israel. And it is genetic, and it is spiritual, and it's both. And I believe that there is coming a great revival, a great gospel outbreak among those unbelieving genetic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob very quickly after Jesus comes to get his church. And remember what the church is. When Jesus gets the church, all the believers will be gone. Everything that's left will be unbelievers. And the church is all believers composed of all Jews and Gentiles who are believers in one body in the time in which we live. And the people that are left behind, as they've called it, are going to have to deal with this and they're going to read the, 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 the New Testament scriptures, and they're going to rethink this through. And a lot of those fellows and gals are really smart, and it's gonna, God's going to dawn it to them. They're going to figure it out. And, um, and there's going to be this massive evangelism, and 12,000 evangelists will arise from every tribe of Israel to go evangelize the world. And they're going to suffer for it. That's called the tribulation period. But anyway, um, you can't read the permanent language here and make it walk on all fours necessarily because, because the word is flexible forever, as we'll see. All right, let's get into the text a little bit. In verse one, he says, draw near, O Goyim. Goyim is Gentiles, but that just means the nations. It means the people that aren't Israel to hear. Now, sometimes Goyim includes all the nations, including Israel. It just means the nations. But when you put it in opposition to Israel, it means the Gentile nations. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and O peoples. A parallel word to nations is um, is uh, the the peoples, uh, and this is a um, this is actually a pretty rare word for peoples, but we do have it here. And O peoples. Uh, Listen attentively to what we're going to say. Here, O land, your Bible says earth, erits, earth, or land. Maybe earth is better because of the universal context here. Um, and all its fullness, O earth, but then you have the, the parallel word for earth, tevel. And this is a great point to, to bring out. The words, the nouns in the Old Testament, the nouns are challenging things. They're harder than the verbs in some ways because in some cases there's dozens of nouns in this chapter that are obscure and like, really, an ostrich? Actually, Isaiah likes to say ostrich. He thinks it's, I think he thinks it's a demonic-looking thing. And so he calls the ostrich out all the time when there's judgment and wrath. Um, Have you ever been through the drive-through park where you feed the ostriches? Um, That's the only time you get hurt. Buffalo sticks his head in and big old purple tongue Smacks you in the face. It doesn't hurt. It's not pleasant, but it doesn't hurt. You feed it some of the crumbs that they get that you bought to feed them. Have you been through the drive-through part? It's a really fun thing. Maybe that's for the south. Um, the ostrich, though, he's very aggressive, super pushy, and uh, he will peck you with that giant face, and it's it's awful. But um, I think it's also kind of cool. But anyway, the the nouns through here like erets. I had a class in class I had a question: erets is that land or is that earth? Well, in your Bible, it says earth here. Um, Let the earth and all it contains here. And then the parallel word, tevel, they translate world. Well, what's the difference between the earth and the world and the land? Well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the Eretz, the earth. And the land God promised Abraham is also called the Eretz, the earth or the land. And it doesn't mean that Abraham gets to own the whole planet it means that, or the, or the dry land on the plant means the specific land that he designated the promised land. So it, these words have flexible meanings. And the point is that we have a universal appeal. Hero land and all its fullness, earth and all which spring from it. So the inhabited land. So this is why I'm calling it universal wrath. He's talking to everyone. Now, isn't that interesting that God is talking to everybody in the mouth of Isaiah or through the pen of Isaiah now in Hebrew, I think that's fascinating. And most people don't know Hebrew. Now, somebody learned it and translated it into our English Bibles for us, and we're so grateful for that. But think about what's happening is God, the God who exists, that everybody's accountable to is talking to all the nations in Hebrew. Listen up. For the indignation of the Lord is against all the Goyim. The indignation, the ketzef. So many nouns in here that are challenging. The indignation of Yahweh is upon or against all the goyim, all the nations, and wrath, parallel idea to indignation, against all her enemies. All their enemies, all the enemies of... All their, I'm sorry, all their armies. So notice that the indignation of the Lord is like... The offense to his character seems to be like he's he's a, there's an indignation, an offense of righteousness. Right there's a transgression that's happened. Wrath is the consequence. So those are parallel ideas. The nations and their armies. This is a military thing. This is a passage where God has his uniform on. He's Lord Sabaoth. He's the God of the armies, or Yahweh of the armies. And so um, and and by the way, we're headed to Isaiah thirty six thirty seven where God defeats the armies of uh, Sennacherib. The, the, the 850,000 um, uh, Assyrians are going to be killed in one in one night. So, so what you have here is um, the summary. And also, as we've seen all along, God disarms his opponents. Egypt has nothing to offer the Judah. Judah isn't going to do anything with the horse. It's that old that old concept that if God, if God isn't in it, you're gonna lose. And if God is in it, you can't, you can't lose. And now they're in trouble because God's against them. Now God is very much rattling the saber kind of like he does with Jonah. Now, now what did God say? he was going to do through the prophet Jonah. When Jonah gave God's word, the word of the Lord through Jonah the prophet, and that's what a prophet is, someone speaking directly what God's word. He said, 40 days and you're all all toast. You're done in 40 days. That was his message, right? But he didn't do it. He rattled the sword. He rattled the chains. He said, this is gonna hurt. And then they responded and received that oracle, received the message. I think it's important that the nations listen up. God has an end point to His grace period. There is coming the consequence. The trap is going to snap. And it's a long tripping of the trap till it snaps, but it will. And it's coming, and this passage describes it. He will utterly destroy them. He'll give them over to slaughter. That is what's going to happen because of the wrath of God. God's wrath is going to be issued forth on the nations and their armies. And their slain will be thrown out, and their corpses, will, the stench, the, their slain are thrown out. And the parallel thought to that is the, the corpses have a stench that goes up. That's the language. Well, you go po- po- poet Isaiah, but that's that's that brings you into the battlefield. And you kind of have you ever smelled um, something that some, something an animal that was that died and, and was decaying. That's a horrible smell. You, mo- you kind of multiply that by an order of magnitude when there's a, a, a full-size human that that's happened. And it's, it's a horrible, horrible thing. And it's one of the worst things about life is war because war is this. War is the smell of blood that has uh, been spilled and then gotten bacteria in it. And then there's a smell with that. And then the decaying of the, of the corpses. It's a horrible thing. And Isaiah is bringing you into that kind of idea that kind of perspective he's bringing you to hell on earth they will melt the mountains with blood literally they'll melt and they will dissolve the army of heaven and that took us out of the earthly picture out up to heaven the army of heaven melt. now the mountains are going to melt with blood but then the army of heaven will dissolve and that is an interesting switch and we went from as below now we're up looking at above and this is taking you out of just the temporal God's deliverance of Judah with the with the destruction of Sennacherib's army or at the battle of Armageddon it's taking you to God's ultimate resolution and so we we almost want to we want we almost want to go we do we want to go read the end of revelation for just a second it's um it's pretty I think clear that he's doing he's talking about the same event as Revelation 21. Or I'm sorry, Revelation 20. In Revelation 20, we should read this together more often than we do. In chapter 20 the the John the apostle writes what he's seen. He writes the word a thousand six times. Um, but he only needed to say it once for us to know it, but now we know it six times that there's the word a thousand years of this phase of God's his- history, and the first phase of the kingdom being this thousand years. In verse seven, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. So there's a peaceable time of a thousand years where there's no Satan or demonic activity on earth. Jesus is ruling in Jerusalem on Zion over all the nations. You and I are resurrected church saints who are part of His kingdom administration. Jesus told the disciples they were going to sit and judge the twelve, sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This, what about us? In, In Matthew 19, they are the apostles who began the church, and so we are somehow involved in that administrative task. And so at the end of that period, and by the way, the people that survived the tribulation period and go into this kingdom when Jesus delivers Israel, all Israel will be saved. When he delivers them, they are not resurrected, but they have been delivered, and they're believers, and then they will have children, and a population explosion will ensue, and it's a very strange time, because per, because you have perfect environment, you have the the curse of the nature removed, and we, the sons of God, have been a part of god setting free the earth from its corruption in romans chapter 8 uh, and yet you have believers that are not yet resurrected and so still sinful and they're having children and those children are sinners and they need to believe in christ who is the king sitting on the throne of david's throne in jerusalem it's a very interesting time because resurrected saints are living in the same sphere as as believers that are that are not yet resurrected mortals and they are having children and and populating and propagating and at the end of this thousand year period which i believe is the final test on mankind and the demonstration of god's faithfulness despite man's failure and satan's attack you have satan leading another revolt it will come about let's see um uh, Satan will be released from his prison. will come out in verse eight of Revelation 20 to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. So somehow Satan is able to, after a thousand years of perfect environment with Jesus ruling in a perfect government. Wow. A broken government today is trying to get to perfect environment, but it can't. God will rule in Christ in perfect environment, perfect government, and still Satan leads a rebellion. Uh, and so, um, verse nine: They came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Uh, it's almost like when East, when I'm sorry, when um, Lot's wife looked back and she turned into a pillar of salt. It's this massive—you can't number the people in in this millennial mortal frame that are at the th- end of the thousand years, revolting against God, being led by Satan. And just fire comes down from heaven and devours them. It's very matter of fact, very quick. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. That's brimstone. It means sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So it says that it says the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. And then the beast and the false prophet, which you've, which you've already read about in earlier chapters. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Books were open, another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. See, this is a resurrection to death. Then Hades, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. You don't want to be at that great white throne judgment, judged for your deeds. Everybody that thinks they're going to be judged for their works, well, you you may be because you didn't trust in Christ and you aren't written in the Lamb's book of life, so you are going to be judged for your works, which will never measure up to God's righteousness and you will be thrown into the lake of fire. And so... This, uh, the festivities of the great white throne are preceded by Satan and his earthly minions thrown into the lake of fire. And, um, and it isn't anything for God to win. It isn't anything for God. He just, you know, fire comes from heaven and consumes the army arrayed against him. This is the future of the angelic conflict, the devil and his Fallen angels are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And so I don't know if this is a reference to that in verse 4, but it does correspond. They will dissolve all the army of heaven. They'll be rolled away like a scroll. What? The heavens? So the army of heaven is dissolved. And it's like heaven and earth fly or flee away in the presence of the Lord. And all their army will wither away. As it withers, the leaf from the vine as the withering from the fig tree. So... I think one thing that's being demonstrated is when God puts on his uniform and actually starts executing wrath, there's no creature, heavenly or earthly, that can abide the wrath of God. And And that's designed, that word is designed to make you and I fear the Lord. We're right up here. You, right here. Isaiah, come sit right up here. There's nothing to talk about. Well, all we need to do is listen to what's being taught. That's it. That's the job. Now, the the power of God is on display, and the result of being taught the power of God is the fear of the Lord, is that we would consider his power, and as Jesus said, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's what's at least being shown as you see God's power. For it is thoroughly satiated in the heavens, my sword. Behold, upon Edom it will descend. So God's winning the heavenly angelic war, and he's winning on earth too, on Edom, and upon a people of my harem. Not harem, harem. This is this word, C-H-E-R-E-M, with a pronominal suffix here. Harem is your word for God's ban, God's, um, God's, set aside thing for total destruction or total consecration to him. Cherem War is the summary of what God told Joshua and the children of Israel to do in the conquest of Canaan, to kill everyone and everybody and everybody else. And you don't leave anyone left alive of the Canaanite civilization was God's instruction. And uh, this is this word, cherem, someone placed under this ban. The people of my band are now, he's saying, these are the people that are marked out for total destruction, for judgment. So, the, so I think it's fascinating. I have lots of questions about the angelic conflict, but as I was uh, once really encouraged in a conversation with Charles Clough, we are dogmatic to say that what is happening on earth is very clearly in the Bible affecting things that are happening in the heavenly places. And what is going on in the heavenly places, you read in Job chapters 1 through 3, for example, these things are affecting what is happening on earth. And not in the pagan way of thinking that our, our lives are written in the stars and whatever happens to the stars affects how our life goes and we can do soothsayers based on astrology. It's not like that. It's that there's a war on and the battlefield involves what humans choose And the humans are being impacted either by the word of God and the spirit of God or by the fallen angels of Satan whose world system of deception wants you to say, my life doesn't necessarily belong to God. As this creature, I'm not necessarily responsible to worship him. And why would I anyway if he's really not good and and loving and worthy of my worship? This is Satan's message. This is Satan's Uh, attack. And this is no problem for God. And he hasn't revealed everything about this angelic conflict to us. But we are sure of this. Satan is the deceiver of the nations. And his primary method, neat, neat. His primary method of, I've never had a fly attack me while standing here. His primary method, (laughs) his primary method of Attack is deception. That's Genesis three. And the message of God's word is what you need to deal with the conflict. And so notice God, my th- my sword is thoroughly satiated in the heavens. Behold, upon Edom it will come down. So He, he does his cutting up high, on high, and he does his cutting down on earth. The sword of Yahweh is filled with blood. It drips with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For there is a sacrifice for the Lord in Basra, and a great slaughter in the land of Egypt. I, I like to point out some things. We say the word Basra like that's the name of the place. B-O-T-Z-R-A-H would be how you, how you write that. It's Botra. Botra is kind of how you would say that place. And it is the, it, again, it's the, it's the capital city of the Edomite people. So this is God, figure, remember I said he's figuratively showing you in really gory language, his wrath on the Edomites in the language of sacrifice. Those sacrifices, those bloody sacrifices were horrible for the animal being sacrificed. And the cutting apart of the animals kind of is portrayed here as adding insult to the injury. You offered the whole burnt offering up to the lord the whole thing would be consumed by the fire and go up to god as it were in this entire consecration of the animal portraying the entire consecration of the person offering the whole burnt offering for example and so the we talk about the sacrifices um, in a theological sense, I think, a lot, where we're thinking of the fact that Jesus is the real blood sacrifice. His work on the cross provides our redemption, and we're looking back on that, and we understand how Jesus f- fulfills all of those sacrifices. And that's right, we should do that, but this verse is interesting on that doctrine because it brings out what is happening to those animals. It brings out the horror of the animal's uh, being exsanguinated being its throat being slit and blood spraying in some cases arterial, arterial spray uh, the the sacrificial day of uh for the for the uh Passover was was an extremely bloody messy horrific affair and the dismemberment of the animals portraying the person who would be the ultimate sacrifice the horror of the wrath of God on our Savior comes out in verse six i believe but he's talking about how you know how bloody and visceral it is in god in in god's sacrificial system israel well that's what it's going to be like for edom bloody visceral destruction wild oxen will go down with them and bulls with with strong ones young bulls with uh with strong ones um talking about the the livestock not just the people and their land will be soaked with blood and their dust from fat will be made greasy so not just the people but their animals too for a day of vengeance is unto the Lord and a year of recompense for the reeve against Zion and this takes you I believe aback as you're reading it you're Israel you're reading uh, what Isaiah say okay let's was that published? Was Isaiah's latest prophecy published in the paper? No, they wouldn't even run it. You have to go down and, and get, get from the scroll, you know. So, th- so they go downtown. Well, what did Isaiah say today? And they're reading along and they get to verse 8 and it says, we're not, now we're talking about Zion. For, for a day of vengeance belongs to Yahweh. A year of parallel thoughts of vengeance, of recompense for the reeve, the case against Zion. This word is in Isaiah 1, where Isaiah is calling, actually the Lord through Isaiah is calling heaven and earth as the two witnesses against Israel, against Judah for their rebelliousness. That's that's the reeve or the case. It's like a courtroom case. And this reminds us that the prophets of God are like prosecuting attorneys with the law, the Mosaic law as the the legal code that they're prosecuting. And this word here is I'm translating case. Is, is a technical word for, um, for court case, for a, a, a suit being brought against them. And so I think this is a throwback. This is a callback to chapter one when God is saying, I've got a problem. This is why Isaiah, if you read it right, it's the prophet of doom for the rebellious in Israel and deliverance for the remnant. It's both. A year of recompense against Zion. And then the language gets really dark about Zion. They will be turned her nahar, nahal, her streams, uh, into pitch. And you know what pitch is? Pitch is, is tar. It's, it's, the, it's resin from a tree that you've rendered into a flammable fluid, a fixotropic, a part solid, part fluid type substance. And so we call it pitch. You could call it tar. But the point is, when you say pitch, it means you're going to start a fire. And her dust to sulfur. Now, in my Bible says brimstone, and I finally had the presence of mind to look up what brimstone is. Do you know where the word brimstone comes from? This is fun. Um, brimstone is the old English word for that, that powder that you find around volcanoes that is flammable uh, if you get it hot enough. And then it does really strange things when you combust it in, with oxygen, with air. It is uh, it is sulfur and, um, and it's known, it's, if you think about the, the primitive life and, and uh, kind of the way people used to live in camping out and they used to point, use pointy sticks made with um, sharpened rocks on the end of them to stab each other and then eventually they found a specific type of rock that's got some special elements, some special ore in it that you can mine that and put that on the end of your stick and then stab people with that. I mean, the primitive life that people lived in um, right up until you know, uh, the advent of gunpowder and some other things, um, uh, sulfur is an interesting substance. It has really interesting properties. For example, if you get the fire hot enough to set it on fire, it glows blue. The fire glows blue. And if you then know enough to analyze it, which we do today, when you burn sulfur with uh, our air with oxygen, you can bust it together. You get sulfur dioxide, which is a toxic, um, with a, which is a toxic gas. Um, and uh, naturally, sulfur will make with the oxygen make sulfur trioxide, which uh, makes the water acidic. And um, so it's a really interesting thing. But where you find it is around the volcanoes. It has to do with um, uh, with a oh yeah, the sulfur dioxide makes an interesting smell too. And um, it's a horrible addition to the heat of the burning. It's like the smelly context of where there's burning. And this is why fire and brimstone is the language through the Old and New Testaments for God's ultimate wrath. It isn't just that it's hot, it's that it's hot and it's choking and, and stinks. And um, so anyway, uh, brimstone, why do they call it brimstone? Um, Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, suggests that it's an Old English word, which that doesn't mean King James English. That's modern English, and it isn't Chaucer. I understand Chaucer to be late Middle English. It's back when English there was speaking you wouldn't have understood it as English. You would have thought it was German because it was. It was a Germanic dialect, and the um, Old English brinstein Bryn, Bryn, or brinstein is where we get the word brimstone and so uh fire stone they called it firestone and so it's the stone that it's the it's the mineral that occurs around the fire nevertheless um this is i just want to run that down when you run run across fire and brimstone like in genesis 18 um, it's usually a way of describing god's wrath and um, i think it's fascinating that um, the more we study the the world that God gave us, the more we can understand his word um, because he understood everything he made from the very beginning. But uh, that, that's creation apologetics. But our dust is going to be turned to, to firestone to, to sulfur and she will be the feminine noun. She feminine verb. She will be, that's the air. It's the land burning pitch. So there's a fire of wrath from God coming on Zion. Laila v'yom, day, night and day, the fire will not go out. Forever it will go up. What? Her smoke. From generation to generation, it'll be in ruins. Throughout eternity, none will pass through her. This is very challenging language since he said the word Zion before. They will inherit or possess it. The word yarash, translated possess in your Bible, is, is also the word for inherit. Because the way you get a possession is that God gives it to you. And when God gives you something, that's called an inheritance from the Lord. When he gives you something, he didn't die, but he gave you something that he had made. He, he took it from his possession and transferred custody and ownership of it over to you. And that's why this word inherit can also mean to possess. And this is fun. It can also mean to dispossess. Because the way you would inherit the land from the Canaanites is you would first dispossess them, <laughs> take it from them, and then inherit it because God was giving it to them. Nevertheless, that's this word here. And then we have the pelican and the hedgehog. Um, this, is a, this is a zoo chapter. The pelican is um, an ugly, weird animal compared to like you and your little pretty babies and kids. And. And uh, puppies, and you know, the good things, little pretty sheep. This is one of the goofs of the world that God made, and it glorifies God that He's a goof. The pelican, and um, the, 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 the archaeology people are pretty sure that's the word a pelican. And then, of course, the hedgehog. And so I'm selecting the images that I want to use of the various creatures. Um, do you see how that looks kind of like a, a small owl? See, the, you ever seen the little owls that you can't see their, their horns or whatever? Well, some, some people think that the hedgehog would be better translated owl. And I think there's a reason. I think we see it right here. But um, this, is, this is the, this, I mean, that's an adorable horror show, but he is kind of an ugly little critter. Especially if he gets nervous and puffs at you while you're holding them. And have you ever held a hedgehog? And y'all ever been to the flea market? Okay, so there's this place down in Texas called Canton, and you can find anything there. And I actually almost bought a hedgehog once, but, um, but we didn't. We were wise, and we didn't want to feed it. We wanted the people that owned it to keep owning it. All right, so a hedgehog. And the horned owl, and there's a problem with these nouns. It could be the horned owl, and some guys think it's the ibis. And so the scholars are kind of back and forth. We say horned owl. And the other guy says in German, no, it's the ibis, this filthy animal. So we'll show both of them. And the raven will live there. So there's the horned owl. And um, he has a lot to, you know, he's, he's got, he has an opinion, doesn't he? Um, that guy. Um, he, it looks like, as Jerry Clower once said, he looks too much like folks. Um, that looks like somebody with, with a, with a what, is, what is that? what are those eyes saying? I know you. I know what, you, what you've done. I mean, that's very convicting, the horned owl. Uh, the ibis, I found this is the bald ibis. Um, there are other pictures of ibis, ibises that are better looking, but I think the point Isaiah's making is that this is a haunt of demons and the demonic and the horror show. So that's what you get uh, ugly all day. And, and you might think this one's beautiful. This may be an animal who, uh, with a face only mother could love. But there's the bald ibis. And then, of course, the raven, and I don't know what happened to that raven's eyes. It may just be the way the camera caught it, but that looks like a, that's, that's a horrific thought too, the raven. The uh, raven eats uh, dead things and is one of the sort of tropes in all literature, including the Bible, for the wicked. Nevermore. The owl will live in her, the raven will live in her, and he will stretch over her the line of tohu and the plumb line of bohu. Uh-huh. So right here, the kav of tohu, and the plumb line, the, the rock, the the rocks of depth or something of bohu, the plumb line. Do you know what a plumb line is? So if you stretch out a line, that's a measurement. I've got a tape measure and I'm measuring. You know how many of these did I did I get to get to the end? That's the measure. That's the kav. That's the line. But the plumb line is when there's a rock on the end of it. Do you know what you use that for? Use that to see if if my if my if my um, beam is here, where does my post go? So you hang it down from the post, and gravity takes over, and you end up with a perpendicular line that touches the ground. And so, and so, it's these, these are building tools; these are measurements for buildings. But it's the 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 line of the measuring line of Tohu and the, the plumb line of Bohu, and that language. Does anybody know where that language is from? This is Genesis chapter one, verse two. This is the earth was without form and void. That was tohu bohu, And it's one of the most mysterious verses in the Bible. And it's gotten all kinds of speculation. And I try to avoid speculating about it. But it's definitely not a good thing if God is bringing formlessness and void or total chaos or the waste. The idea of the chaos and the primordial creation comes out of Genesis 1 verse 2. And of course, you might have heard of the gap theory that this is when Satan rebelled against God and then destroyed the planet or the, or the creation of God and then God judged it. And that's why the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the deep. And um, there's, a, there's all kinds of theories about this. The Bible doesn't say that. We actually don't need to know about Satan's timing of his fall with respect to creation Um, because we meet him in Genesis 3 as the serpent, and we know what we need to know about the enemy of God and the nature of the angelic conflict at that point, but it is a hint. I think it's one of these things that hints, and I I know people that really want to focus on the hint, and maybe maybe that's what God wants them to do, but I, I really think that this is judgment that God is bringing on them, and Maybe that helps me understand a little bit better what's going on in Genesis 1-2. He'll stretch over her the line of formlessness and the plumb line of, of, uh, of waste, of, of, of uh, chaos. Her nobles, and there is nothing there, I put in parentheses, I think that's what he's doing as an aside. Her nobles, there's nothing there to be in charge of, a kingdom they will call. And her, all her princes will be Nothing. So the nobles, with nothing to rule over, they're going to call that a kingdom, and there's nothing for the princess. So it's total waste. And she will go up. Her, this is tough. She will go up her towers, thorns. So the way the Hebrew works is they think that if the towers grow up in the, if the the way they say it, I should say, is if thorns grow up in the towers and like the nature takes over what used to be, um, you know, architecture that was used by humans. Um, then it's that that the she's going up, and so as you go up the and look in the tower, it's full of thorns, nettles, and thistles in her fortified cities. Now I didn't get pictures of thorns and nettles and thistles because um, those aren't as interesting to me. But some of you are are you know um, uh, plant buffs, and you like. You, I wish I had gotten pictures of th- thistles for you. She will be a grazing place of jackals. And a settlement of the daughters of the ostrich. There's your jackal. I got a picture of a jackal for you. So another demonic looking critter. And then, of course, the settlement of the daughters of the ostrich. Selah. Okay. The desert creatures have encountered the howlers. The hairy one upon its friend will call out. And this is a weird word. The hairy one is uh some will absolutely swear some hebrew scholars swear that this should be translated the goat demon that made its way into our popular culture today with the satanists and the baphomet sculpture which is a picture of satan or a demon depicted as a goat but the 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 literal translation of this word of sair is the hairy one and so again it's a hint this is the place of darkness and wickedness and where the wicked gather. Upon its rei, its friend or companion will call out, yes, there she will stay, Lilith. And your Bible says the night monster, but it doesn't say the night monster, it says Lilith. The scholars will also say Lilith is, I mean, I can show you in the the lexicon of record, Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament calls this word uh, a, a, a demon, uh, a, a succubus demon. They go that far in the lexicon of record to talk about what this means. And it is got a feminine verb with it. It's a feminine noun. There she will stay Lilith and she will find herself a resting place. Okay, so by show of hands, who wants to hang out in this place that we're describing? You know, that no, we really want to avoid this. And I can see teaching this passage in a way that gives you all kinds of concrete ideas about where the animals and the demons are related. And I'll just tell you my theory about what's happening. When you have the cherubim described, they have the face of a man and the face of a lion and the face of a, of a haruv or, a, or an ox, a cherub or an ox, the same interchangeable, and the face of an eagle. And how that works, Is it three faces across or is it a face on four sides? It doesn't say. It seems to be it's on four sides. But the way it's described, you've got angels associated with animals. And one theory is that there is, um, just as humans are theomorphic, perhaps the animals are angelomorphic or something, and so maybe there is a connection. Uh, Think about the way the um, Egyptians thought of their gods the Egyptians, with their worship of demons, have human bodies with animal heads on their, on their bodies. And, and so, again, I'm tantalizing you with these are possibilities. And I know you, want, you don't want me to be academic. You want me dog, to be dogmatic about it. But the dogma that I have is that there is demonism and uh, wrath go hand in hand. And you always want to avoid that at all costs, as much as you possibly can. Please bear with me as we close this one down. The three, the tree snake will there will make its nests and lay her eggs and she'll hatch them. She'll gather them in her shadow. Your Bible says protection, but it's the word shadow. Yes, there the hawks will be gathered, each with her companion. Seek from the book of Yahweh and read. Not one from them will be missing. None will lack its companion. For his mouth is commanded, his spirit has gathered them. So this is from God that this is the place of Basically, the toilet of the world. He's cast for them a lot. His hands divided unto them by, the, by line. Unto forever they shall possess or inherit it. From generation to generation they'll dwell in it. So the, the conclusion is that when God's wrath trap finally snaps, You don't want to be there. It's a place that is undesirable and would give you cooties if you went there. It would be scary to be around this place that is ultimately the haunt of demons. I don't believe that this means the demons live anywhere forever because the demons are going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. And I don't think this means that Jerusalem or Zion becomes the lake of fire. I think it means that God's wrath is coming and you really need to be... uh, 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 operating in the fear of the Lord. And I think one of the purposes that God has for this kind of language is he wants Israel to wake up. He wants them to listen, even though he told Isaiah that you keep saying it and they won't be able to listen. Well, uh, the challenge of the wrath of God is to contemplate the omnipotence and the, and the righteousness and the justice of God and see the comparison between God and ourselves and to marvel that none of what we just read applies to us the wrath of God is not ours, it doesn't abide on us because we have the Son, because He was the sacrifice in our place. And so, uh, believers, there are lots of applications here. One is to stay away from demonism. You, you might want to have an arcane fascination with that word Lilith and then go running down the corridors of pagan theology and history, and the archaeology will give you lots of information about what pagans said about Lilith. But it won't be God's word, it'll just be what people said about it. What I want you to do though is keep your finger in the Bible, keep your heart focused on the Lord, and walking with Him in the work that He's got for you to do. Our Father, thank you for the wonders of your word and the challenge of the coming judgment on the nations. Father, the heavy language is baffling to us, how visceral, how gory it gets. and uh, we're to rejoice in your word, rejoice in your righteousness and justice. Thank you that Jesus' blood was shed for us so that we would not be uh, the, the beneficiary, the recipients of your wrath. Thank you that you raised him from the dead so that we can have eternal life with our Savior, who is our focus uh, of our constant attention. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.